Welcome to The Deep Dive. I'm your host, Philip McKenzie. I'm an anthropologist strategist with a focus on culture and humanity-centered design. I'm Brooklyn-born and Brooklyn-made. Every week, I will bring you guests from a wide variety of backgrounds who, despite their different areas of expertise, share traits in common. They aim high, push boundaries, and make things happen. Their experiences drive insights. On today's episode of The Deep Dive, I'm joined by Nicholas Badman. He's the chief futurist and think tank leader at futurist.com. He is a seasoned futurist, researcher, media producer, consultant, and fellow of the RSA. He frequently consults for multinational organizations, governments, media companies, and investment funds, having specialized in highlighting the significance of foresight in securing future success. We're going to be spending most of our time talking about his latest book, Facing Our Futures, How Foresight, Futures Design, and Strategy Creates Prosperity and Growth. I want to welcome Nicholas to the deep dive. How are you? It's great to be here. Thanks for having me along. We've already bonded over our our love of <laughs> Iron Maiden of course. And, and various other musical groups and genres that we've dropped on the show. Yeah, We're not going to turn this into a music conversation, as tempted as I am to, to do that. We are going to talk about the futures in plural, something I was, I was very happy to see because I use plural when discussing the future always. So I think that's a perfect place for us to start. Facing our futures, what was the, you know, incentive, the initiative behind um, publishing this particular work at this particular time? Yeah, so it's kind of interesting. I've been working, I've been focused working in futures work for the last 10 years. Prior to that, I was working in consultancy and advertising, consumer behavior, behavioral targeting. I built, I've built out big data infrastructure for a whole number of different things, analytics and whatever over the years. And I actually come from a background at University of Applied Psychology and Computing, looking at AI and looking at language. So I've kind of been swimming in this, this world of, of futures work for a very long period of time. And obviously, as a kid, I was excited about sci-fi and visions of of what our futures could look like. But really, the impetus for writing this book was the fact that you know I was doing tons of speaking, big audiences around the world talking about, you know, trends and futures, possibilities, you know, tensions and, and troubles. And then the pandemic hit. <laughs> so at the beginning of the pandemic, I moved into a house, brand new house, pregnant wife, all my business evaporated. And I'm like, okay, <laughs> what do we do as, as we work in futures work? It's like, this was always a possibility. Did I prepare for it? Maybe not as well as I should have, but it was like, okay, this is where I, I sort of turn on the, the consulting advisory piece as well as doing some sort of virtual keynotes. And I've been doing that for about two or three years, but really dialing up the consultancy. So I started working with people to try and help them in their organizations. And I work mostly with the C-suite, their organizations to really dial up their thinking around futures exploration. And we talk about futures plural because there are multiple, if not infinite futures ahead of us, and everyone's got their own path forward, right? And their own experiences. And this book was sort of born out of all of that work that I was doing with, you know, big tech companies, small startups, governments, organizations that I was doing keynotes with. And uh, I'd just written a, a chapter for The Future Starts Now for Bloomsbury, which is a book curated by my friends Theo Priestley and Bronwyn Williams. And they made that chapter, which is called Starting Start with Dystopia, the first chapter, the opening chapter. And I was like, oh. And I'd been playing with ideas around, we have to explore how bad it can get with the bad decisions that we make and those dystopic futures. And people were really into it. I was running an event called Dark Futures pre-pandemic. And uh, yeah, it was really sort of passionate, like subject matter for me. And I pitched Bloomsbury and they were like, we love it. And it seems quite apt to talk about planning for positive and looking at at negative trajectories towards our dystopic futures because we're kind of living it. You know, the pandemic was not fun. <laughs> Let's be yeah. honest. You know, there was tension. We were seeing global dynamics. We were seeing sort of the industrial complex, you know, failing and collapsing around us and transformation happening and decisions being made quickly. And no one really with an action plan 
so the book that I put together was really, okay, I love the futures world. I wanted to signpost dozens of amazing thinkers in futures. And there's a really great community of foresight practitioners out there and futurists. I also wanted to say, okay, here's a framework to navigate these different futures, positive and dystopian. And I wanted to say, you know, this is how we can tell stories, how we can take people to 20, 30, 50 plus years and so they can feel what it's like and then take that information as evidence back to today and build out really strong, focused strategic planning that actually makes a difference in the long run. And, you know, one of the things that, you know, I've, I've wrestled with for a while, well, with the book, it's like this wonderful way of kind of crafting these different perspectives, right? So that's yeah. that's one very keen takeaway that I had as a as a reader of the book. Right. As someone also in in foresight space and and coming from the perspective of culture, I've always and and those who are who are listeners of the show know this, like I've always had a challenge with the notion of futurist, right? Right. Even though I've talked to lots of futurists and yeah. I, and I had um you know, I've had Douglas Rushkoff on the show several times. And most recent time I interviewed him, me and him actually had a laugh about the term, right? And and sort of kind of took the piss a little bit. And it's not to discredit the work, but it's like the sliver of of folks doing this work in a careful, thoughtful manner, I, f- I find to be very, very like slim. Yeah. <laughs> right. For sure. One man's opinion, right? I, I feel very popular term, caliber of work not as wide as the number of people using using the the term. And yeah. so I go into it with a little bit of skepticism, not with your work in particular, but just the genre, right? And I wonder as someone who has been immersed in this, you know, using the the terminology um and the definitions, do you find some of those same challenges, right? Like you yeah. you know, potentially someone like yourself could be lumped in with the hacks. Is, is is my point. So it's really interesting. So 10 years ago, pretty much 10 years ago, you know, next week, I arranged a conference in Vancouver, um, British Columbia, Canada, called Cyborg Camp. And I did it with Amber Case from Portland. And uh, she's a great thinker in cyborg anthropology. I did it with my friend, Karis O'Connell, who I'd known since childhood. And he's just, uh, just left Amazon as head of futures over there as well. And we weren't calling it futurism. We weren't calling ourselves futurists. We were calling ourselves like people interested in the intersection of humanity and technology and, you know, potential, you know, trajectories forward from there. You know, we were designers, we were thinkers, we were innovators, we were, you know, trying to shake things up and, and imagine what comes next. And after I started running events and I, I was doing some TV and radio, I was doing some writing. Someone came up to me and uh, and like invited me to a meeting of a bunch of entrepreneurs, and they introduced me in their opening spiel as a futurist, and I was like, "That's so weird," because you know we, we'd sort of seen you know people like uh, Buckminster Fuller, or you'd seen people like Alvin Toffler, and a number of other people out there are being called futurists, and obviously lots of speakers you know that walk the stages and say here's 10 trends and 10 predictions and all this and at that point i wasn't aware of the deep academic side and i think even 10 years ago there wasn't as much activity as there is today and it's a very exciting field to be a part of and i pretty much started off community building getting conversations going exploring together and i was like you know what i'm just gonna put futurist on my linkedin profile (laughs) and it kind of changed everything a bunch of people said, you know, that's BS, you know, whatever, like, you know, what do you, what do you know about this? And, you know, that's not a real job and, and whatever. And then over time, you know, they saw the work that I was doing, a lot of media, a lot of writing, a lot of events. And they're like, wow, like you, you're hitting on something and this is important. You know, I read Doug Rushkoff's book, uh, Siberia in 1994, and it changed my life. I would never call Doug Rushkoff a futurist. Because he's like a, a media theorist and an explorer of idea, you know, team human and all the good stuff, right? And he's one of my big heroes, him, Jaron Lanier, and all these people are super, super exciting for me. But there's some power in saying, I'm a futurist and this is the conversation that we need to have. So I sort of embrace that. And yes, it's been clear that there's been a bunch of people in the field that have been doing this for a few years that are kind of what we call pop futurists, to be really light. Yeah. And it's like walking the stages, predictions and big ideas and high fives and great. And there's some really great people in academia doing work. There's some really great people 
out there in organizations doing it. It's few and far between. There's some great research, but I think in the last five or seven years, there's been a big focus on what this actually means and what this what value can actually be brought to an organization. So I sort of took, you know, my love for speaking, organizing events, uh, doing research and dialed that up and then put the layer of consultancy that I'd already been doing for 20 years and sort of insights and work and sort of became this shaped futurist that I am today. Call myself a chief futurist, futurist.com. I acquired that. We've got a think tank. Chief futurist, I think it's more of a statement of activism that organizations need to step up and have someone at the top table that have got a focus as much as me giving myself a fancy weird title, right? And I talk about that in the book. And, And big love to anyone that wants to call themselves a futurist. Like, do it. Just do it. Explore in your own way. I'm not going to discount what you do. There are some people out there that are saying, there are some charlatans out there and this and that. It's like, you know what? Having a stance as being purely academic and a purist doesn't help anyone. Being welcoming and saying, hey, everyone, let's let's have a big conversation. And in a room of 20, you know, I don't know what you call a, you know, a group of futurists. We'll have to come up with a, a, fore- yeah. a foresight of futurists, maybe. Right, <laughs> put them in a room. You're going to have some really interesting conversations, regardless of where they started their journey or where they stand today. Right, and and I think that's one of the interesting issues is the titling and the credentialing. Not to take away from, of course, yes, I think everyone should be able to participate in conversations because this this is the everything business, right? We're talking about where we see microcosms of our of our world going or macro focuses of our world going. I guess one of the challenges that I've continued to have is when I see large gatherings or large being whatever number you want to attach to being large or a large gathering or group or conference or discussion or or what have you, what is a challenge to me and, and others is seemingly the well not seemingly the the glaring lack of diversity within the room. Yeah for sure. Right. Like it's a, a point that I've tried to make over and over and over again that the future and futures are happening all around us. And the voices that we bring to the table reflect in a way what we're saying about the future. For sure, for sure. I mean, it's interesting. So, I mean, I point fingers towards people from as much of a diverse background as I can. People like Monica Bilskite and a Protopian framework. There's someone that's not mentioned in my book, but someone that's really incredible. Dr. Lonnie Brooks does a lot of amazing work. There's a whole Afrofuturist movement. There's the, you know, I call out the importance of indigenous thinking and indigenous futurism in the book as well and how important that is. I mean, we forget that there are people here for hundreds, if not thousands of years that were like incredibly visionary. And and had ideas about sustainability for the long term. And here comes, you know, the industrial revolution to bulldoze everything, right? But I completely agree. I mean, look, I'm a cishet white dude from England that lives in Canada, right? I just, you know, I, I know that I, I've got a particular privilege in a particular space in the world to have the conversations with people like you and, and to write books and have access to that, but also you know, an ability to provide a platform for people to have a voice. So, for example, I've been running events and I've always been pretty open to anyone that's got great ideas. I generally don't discount them. And one of the events that that I was running for about six years pre-pandemic, I'm trying to bring it back, but people are a little resistant right now, is called Dark Futures. And Dark Futures was like, um, someone called it the Black Mirror of TED Talks. (laughs) So it was People come in 15 minutes, right? Five speakers, 15 minutes a speaker, no breaks, no bathroom breaks, no happiness, just like focused <laughs> in on everything from cybersecurity to cryptocurrency to um, the human condition to um, to a whole number of different a- areas. And you know what? It was a platform for, for older people, for women, um, for trans folks, for... And as much diversity as was willing to knock on the door and say, hey, can I come and speak? And it was always like, yeah, let's do that, right? And I think it's super important because no matter how hard I work at trying to keep an open mind to lay it out and to signpost everyone, I can't stand there and and sort of tell 10,000 people, you know, here's my perspective, this is what I've learned, and this is what I'm doing. And it makes sense to all of them, (laughs) Right. 
And this is what I think a lot of people are missing in, in the futures world, community. You can't just be a speaker on your own without building communities like you doing you know, doing podcasts. I do podcasts as well and, and, and being out there speaking to people and different people. I mean, hell, you know, I'll be honest. I, I speak to a lot of people that are very close-minded in the world in various industries. It's tough, you know, and you've just got to stand up to rights and say, hey, you can't you can't speak about people in that way you can't be negative and whatever everything's quite political right now right but it's interesting it, it there's a there's a really important role in the world for people to step back and and uh provide a platform and say hey you know i'm just gonna be an enabler i'm gonna get out of the way be over here and i want to listen more than i i'm speaking you know yeah and you know, in early on in the book, you you make a highlight. I want to I want to come back to the sure. to the closed minded piece because I, I have a what I call imagination capture, and I want to link those two ideas together. But before I get to that question, I want to talk about this this probable, possible, and preferred. Yeah, right. Like that's one of the sort of signposts that you lay out fairly early in the book when talking about potential futures, right? Yeah, for sure. And I want to give you a chance to explain those concepts, but I also want to throw in another little caveat on the end, which is something I've been thinking about a lot in the idea of, you know, sometimes we think of what's preferred. I think you frame it as the future, but some people prefer the past. Right. (laughs) Right. Right. So I want to to throw that in the mix too, as you kind of go through that probable, possible, and preferred. Yeah, cool. So I'm going to start with the past. So you always have to have historical reference, mostly to work out what we did poorly and the effects of the decisions that have been made, right? You can celebrate victories, but really, let's be honest, nostalgia is the enemy of futures thinking. Like it really, you know, my granddaddy did this or it's been in the family business for X amount of years, you know, it's over, you know? (laughs) like It's like my granddaddy was shipping oil from wherever to, you know, you know, and we ran 25 um, gas stations. I've had these conversations. And it's like, yeah, but like, <laughs> you can't be nostalgic for the, you know, the smell of grease and what. It's just that that's not going to take us into a good place. But when we come back to your idea of like thinking about the probable, plausible, possible, projected futures, whatever, you know, there's the futures cone. If you're a futurist, know the futures cone. If you're looking at this area, look at it, realize that it's an interesting, funky looking diagram that no executive is really going to be able to understand. But there are some nuances around some of these different ideas. I think there's the preferable future. We want this to happen. It is based on our biases. It is based on you know, a number of things that we've been taught to believe. And, you know, we want education to be disrupted. Chat GPT, you know, preferable. Education is broken, blah, blah, blah. Pop futurists on stage waving their flags, right? And then there's probable, which is there are some trends and there are some signals. Signals are these distinct things that are happening. It might be in R&D labs. It might be in society and culture, whatever, just in small ways that you know are going to gain gain pace. They, they're, they're most likely going to happen, but it's got a much broader perspective. There's lots and lots of things that can happen. And then there's the plausible stuff. It could happen. And this is the problem with the futures cone is that it's so nuanced between these different things. But I talk about possible futures more than anything else because it might happen. <laughs> it might not. And I think that that's really important. I, I, I talk about shifting the mindset from what is to what if. Um, because it's an open invitation to be curious about, yeah, but what if that does happen? What does that do to your industry? What does it do to your lives? What does it do to the country and community, to the industrial systems around us? Okay, it might not happen, but like, let's explore that. Because at least through that exploration, we would have worked out, you know, if something bad was to happen, or something good was to happen, if an industry changes entirely, at least we've got an idea of the sort of the size and shape of what that looks like, right? It's, um, but you know, I, as part of the book research, I chatted to a guy called Dr. Joseph Voros from, um, his front down in Australia, his amazing thinker on futures, and he 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 updated this this diagram to include preposterous futures because lots of people are, oh, that's never going to happen. And that, I think, is where there's some real juice. <laughs> because, you know, yeah, you know, I always say, you know, yeah, but what if? It's an invitation to be curious. I also, some, I weaponize the word yet. And it's like, well, that's not going to happen in this industry. I was like, just put yet on the end of that sentence. It's coming. 
signals are here yet. Oh, you know, I'm never going. There's never going to be a fully electrified, you know, workforce on on a farm with the same kind of power that we have today. You know, with diesel. Yet, of course, it is. I mean, like trajectories are telling us that this is this is going to happen, right? So I think that you know, really swimming in that you know possible and preposterous futures, and kind of what I call in the book, you know, positive possible and also dystopian futures is really really important. And preposterous is is first of all it's a great word right yeah and and uh, (laughs) and it's a p so 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 uh, joseph joseph was like i needed a p and it was perfect yeah (laughs) it's it's a it's a big word right and i jotted that down in the notes too i was like you know explain that was my whole question that i had kind of outlined so we kind of got to it without me even bringing it up which is good because i I think like what becomes preposterous to some is not preposterous to others, right? And and so how do we like work through that tension, right? right? I'm, I'm curious your thoughts on walking into whether it's a you know a boardroom in the stereotypical yeah. way in which we think about that or some other setting to really get people around the notion of dealing with what's preposterous. I think the pandemic might have seemed, depending on how much you kept up on World Health Organization type of news, maybe it seemed improbable, but maybe not preposterous, right? Because preposterous was a word which seems like like that's never going to happen. Because I felt that way about a Black president. I right. thought it was preposterous in my lifetime. I was like, I'll never see this. Right. Right. And felt very confident and 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 felt like I had a lot of, you know, information that would back up why that was a relevant viewpoint to have. And then I yeah. was wrong. Right. So I'm curious about how you tease out that tension of preposterous to one versus another. So it is the reality. People don't like to look, I, you know, you know I, I say, you know, why are we afraid of the dark? People don't like to look into the dark. People don't like to um, look at, at, at situations that they might seem to be completely ridiculous because it's counter to what they believe today, right? So it's like availability bias. <laughs> you know, the, the stories and the things that I've learned have taught me X. And anything that's, that, that, that diverges away from X is not comfortable for me. It's also interesting that, uh, psychologically, if you say, okay, let's think about ourselves in the future or a, a version of the future, 20 years time, that person's an absolute stranger. <laughs> so we're already like, I can't connect. I just can't connect to those futures. I can connect to next week or next year, but I can't connect to like 2050. The world is just alien to me. And that person, you know, so the futures work that we do, we try and we try and really um, sit down and say, okay, here's some possibilities. I'll tell you a story. Late last year, I did a keynote, and it was about um, operational excellence, and it was about um, learning and uh, upgrading and upskilling executives thinking. And I spoke about a number of things that I normally do. And I had this person come to me, and she was like, I really love what you do. I think you could actually work with our chief, our, our executive, our chief executive. And I was like, great, who do you work for? And she was like, you know, we work for a, a, a fossil fuel company. We work for a, a company that provides natural gas and all the different kinds of gas. I was like, okay. I was like, I don't talk really about helping fossil fuel companies doing what they're doing. I, I'm all about the transition and thinking beyond. And you know, what if in 20 years' time, your company doesn't sell any kind of fossil fuel based or any kind of uh, emission, but uh, emission based either through production or burning of like gas? And she was like, okay, let me take it in. And we had a conversation. I ended up writing this big proposal. And it was like, here are the signals and the trends that are indicating to us that in 20 to 25 years, your industry is very likely and possible, even though preposterous, will not exist. It will not exist. And actually in New York City, they've just, uh, any new building will not be uh, retrofit or retrofitted with 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 natural gas as a power source. No right? more no more gas stoves. Yeah, no more gas stoves. I mean, I've got a gas stove upstairs and it just burns my brain. I've got to spend a lot of money like fitting out my house to be 100% electric. Anyway, and, and I presented this in and uh, all the evidence was there that we could do some work that 
we can have a plan for your company and it can be kept secret and internal and for your own use strategically to plan on how you, your company as an energy company, is still going to be making good money and providing huge service to the people where you provide it. And the response was, well, we just want to focus on our business plans right now. And thank you. And uh, no, thanks. <laughs> I'm like, okay, there's nothing I can do in, in that situation. Because people, the evidence would tell you, if you looked at everything and we did that work, it, it's so obvious. And I, I shared a number, number of insights. It's over. Like it's being regulated out of the situation. Indigenous populations don't want it on their land in any form. You've got consumers that don't want to do it. You've got decisions being made by people building infrastructure. You've got renewable energy building pace. You've got a global um, a global supergrid that, that could come to be in the next 30 or 40 years that's going to be fully clean, uh, abundant renewable energy. And no one's going to be burning gas stoves. <laughs> and it's like, ah! But, you know... The people that I do work with that do believe that the world is going to change, they really embrace this and they really integrate futures work and they really question, you know, what they're doing today. Is is that going to be the case in the next 5, 10, 20 years? And because they can do that, they're going to be companies that are going to be around for the next 100 to 200 years, right? And this energy company is going to be nowhere. It's going to be bankrupt. It's going to be done. So it, it seems that if anything, one should at least want to explore these things in order to play right. defense, right? Like definitely not rooting for the energy companies, but right. just thinking practically, you know, that this notion of sticking your head in the sand right. doesn't seem like a viable strategy for the future. Well, but ironically, and I talk about this in it, Royal Dutch Shell invented a lot of the early techniques around forecasting and foresight. And they found out and they realized um, that <laughs> the burning fossil fuels causes emissions, CO2, that causes global warming. And they buried it and buried it and buried it and shared the information with other oil companies and they buried it as well. And so it's like tobacco companies, right? Like tobacco companies, you know. Let's get a bunch of doctors to say, ah, you know, cool, smooth Laramie, you know, or whatever. Yeah. It's like, <laughs> wow, come on. But back in the day, culturally, we we're like, yeah, you know, I've got a car, and you know, I can turn on my oil stove and be warm in the winter. And so there's a context and there's a time and whatever. But imagine if. Someone like Royal Dutch Shell would have started saying, okay, we're going to diversify. We're no longer going to sell you know, oil-based fuel. Um, and what if we were, were going to really sort of jump on board with, with, with that state of affairs, right? Imagine, you know, they're making gazillions of dollars now, but you know, yeah. they're, they're trying to buy their way into the renewable space and whatever. You know, it, it, it's kind of, it's very you know, challenging. And that lets me kind of lead into the, the imagination capture piece, yeah. right? You know, it's it's something I've, I've written about and talk about a lot because it, it frustrates me that oftentimes that funnel that you talked about, that famous future cone or future funnel, it appears from a perspective, you know, to funnel out and look quite wide, right? That's right. And then someone like me comes along and I'm like, I don't know if this is as wide as people think, right? Because we right. are still bound by and thinking through our futures in the context of the market, right? So every decision or every pathway that we're looking at is through this viability of the market as it exists today, yeah. right? And, and so I'm curious how, to what extent you reflect on you know, what I'm calling imagination capture, but could easily be called something else, right? That our imaginations would seem so broad actually are more narrow than we're willing to concede. Yeah, it's called the poverty of imagination. So we've got a poverty of imagination because over the last 300 years uh, in the Industrial Revolutions, we've basically been told how to travel, <laughs> how to communicate, um, what, what energy to consume, right? They're the three dimensions of change, like uh, information, communication, energy, and transportation in the industrial age. And obviously, this has been dialed up through the different informational ages and whatever. And now we're kind of like, you know, the computer age and the fourth industrial revolution. We're trying to get free of those bounds of like fossil fuels and whatever, right? 
the poverty of imagination just means that we've been put into the structure of you work nine to five, Monday to Friday. You know, eventually they they bent a knee and said, okay, you can have Saturdays and Sundays off, Sunday for church and Saturday, so that you can go to the store and buy the products that are built by other companies and by you in the factories in the industrial revolution. So all of this is structural. You know, ultimately, is colonization of culture and operating within certain boxes and ways, and that's killed any sense of our creativity in many aspects and imagination. I mean, there are still amazing, you know, we, we revere storytellers and people that are truly imaginative and truly creative and push the boundaries of culture because they're so few and far between in our modern world and they almost are non-evident in very large business and government these days because they, they're operating within a very, very small accepted pool it's not even an overton window of political acceptance it's like it's like a subsection of that. structurally operationally expectations and bias and political stance and all of that and the futures work what we try and do is we like shake it off anything is possible you know obviously within the bounds of you know physics yeah <laughs> humans aren't just going to be able to fly one day so you know we, we sort of draw a line right yeah physics is one of those things and the parlance though does equate so many of our cultural and societal choices yeah with the laws of nature right right like these things are just the way it is right yeah. capitalism equals progress right by any measure and that's a natural law right like we are built to compete in some kind of way right the survival the fittest notion like these are just the way things are yeah you know and it feels sometimes that i would like to see more of a pushback on these seeming inevitabilities right like like chat gpt is a perfect example of that right like we're we're speaking about these things in a way of, well, this is coming. Like, I, I see this a lot, particularly in the music space. We kind of started this conversation talking about music, right? Like, right. you know, this is like Napster, you know, AI generated music is like Napster all over again. Right. Music industry and artists either learn what this is and use it in the confines of the market or go away. <laughs> right. And that duality. Yeah. angers me because i'm like there's got to be there's got to be more to this than just the inev inevitability of a thing yeah i mean people <laughs> this is the poverty of imagination means that we're always looking for something better than what we have a convenient replacement and it's like ah you know suddenly the world's an ai express like there's the thing there's the thing that can now write the article and do the contracts and i, I was chatting to a client a couple of weeks ago they're like, you know what? We fed a bunch of data that we've got and we put it in and it summarized everything perfectly. I'm like, where did you get that data? And they were like, well, you know, we bought that data from this company. I said, is that publicly accessible? They're like, no. I was like, you do realize that now ChatGPT and the model has now got that data available for everyone and you've basically broken <laughs> broken licensing agreements. They're like, well, <laughs> it's, like, it's like, come on, it's nuanced. Um, so things like ChatGPT is like a mirror and whatever with music and generation. Everything can get disrupted. So I talk about futures as being the missing link between disruption and strategy. It helps you you know, go out there and, and really explore a world and all the possibilities. I mean, I'm not, I started off in the 90s looking at AI and language and understanding the very nature of the processing of distinct patterns and the use is very, very good now. I mean, I've used ChatGPT, but you end up with something that's such a subpar product um, to me because I'm in the information like gathering analysis, providing new opinions, connecting things, being creative. It, it's so subpar in so many ways. But if you're like, an intern or a junior in marketing, you could write a bunch of copy for a web article that suddenly that would take you two days to write and get approval. And you can basically prompt engineer it in an hour and pump it out in like seconds. It's a glittering lure, right? I'm um, sure it might work from an SEO perspective, but it's not going to do anything for humanity. Like, do we need more junk? <laughs> like, it was just well, this is it. I mean, we, we operate in a world where sort of you know, like junk information is is the fuel for so much in the world, and we've just become complacent about the role that it plays in our life, right? Yeah, and that's like it's junk information. It's just junk 
everywhere. Yeah. Right. Like whether it's the physical or the digital. And, you know, I, I, I was in Mexico and I was doing a talk. This is before the pandemic. And so I kind of extended it into a, a holiday. So I got to spend about two weeks in Mexico for an engagement that started just in Mexico City. And this is not an indictment of Mexico or Mexico City. What I what I saw there that I'm going to reference, I could have seen and have seen in many other cities. But I remember I was in a neighborhood that was known for kind of markets and, you know, just strolling around and I was walking. And I just saw like the streets are clogged with vendors just all selling some slight variation of the same shit thing. Yeah. Right. Some something that kind of twirls around yeah. or some yeah. cheap chotsky or something, you know, and and I kind of was it really bummed me out. And again, this is nothing to do with Mexico in particular. It's just I kept thinking that like somewhere somebody had to make that, right? They had we shipped it somewhere. We we there's a warehouse filled with it, right? Right. And then to land on this blanket on a street in Mexico city in the same way canal street or wherever the fuck, it doesn't matter. And it's like, we're choking ourselves with garbage. And then I look at this and I feel like it's more of the same. Waste is a cultural artifact of the industrial revolution. Just physical waste is incredible. 80% of all plastics that have been produced are still in existence on the planet. And their mass is twice the mass of all living mammals. You know, just yeah. like, <laughs> you know, it's great. But the information like we are growing 60% year on year the amount of information that's being generated in the world. Not all of it can be used. Um, and it's being weaponized and misinformation is as bad. There's great information that can really lift society up and, and transform it as well, right? But like there's an unlimited amount of junk information out in the world. And social media is accelerating that. You know, I'm, I'm an information broker when I when I write and when I do things like this, when I'm, I'm speaking to people on stage. TV or whatever, I got to make sure that what I'm saying is it got at least, you know, it's actually true and and it's based on the goodness of humanity, like it will for the goodness of humanity in our futures as well, right? And you know, we just yeah, it's 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 outrageous. I was just in Mexico myself as well, and it's like, yeah, all of this all of this was made in China. <laughs> it's like, it took a long way to get there, right? Yeah, and it's like, what what are we doing? And it's like, you know, we we've been told a lie. We have to grow. We have to make money. We have to buy stuff. We ground the success of an economy based on how many how many eighty inch TVs are bought on Black Friday. What? Where are we? Right? Yeah. Again, it's sort of um, stru structural po poverty. <laughs> we kind of like if you're not playing this game, then you're not anyway. You know. Um, at the same time, I tried to live a minimalist life for a year. This was quite a few years ago. You lose a sense of personality and who you are and whatever. So there, it's in, it's interesting because there are some cultural artifacts. It might be clothing, it might be music, it might be some things that make you feel good about yourself and your community and your house. So it's important. So yeah, it, we got to play with all these ideas. But man, we we got to work out what this consumption is. All of the shrinking of businesses in Silicon Valley and whatever, they make plenty of money. They could pay everyone. It's oh, fine, yeah. but it's PR. Because the shareholders are saying, yeah, but I tell you what, like, you know, Google laid off this many people. So you matter. You got to lay off those many people because clearly if you're not, then you're not in the same game. Apple just doesn't care because it makes like, what is it? $2.6 trillion company. They just don't care. Yeah. And they've always <laughs> operated in that way. I kind of like it that way. But everyone's like, you know, yeah, you know, keeping up with the Joneses. We're, we're always having to like play this game and market dynamics and growth any cost just seems absolutely insane to me why why can't we have the mindset of just doing really good for the world and you know everyone winning and it's not the case and and that lets me come i want to keep an eye on the time for you yeah for sure the notion of this optimism versus dystopian you know you talk yeah. about the conference and you know it, it seems like the dystopian is so seductive and I remember um, just recently, I was, a friend of mine posted about the new season of Black Mirror, right? It's, very, right. it's a good pop culture artifact to kind of talk about dystopia. Because when we, when we see announcements of things that look terrible, people will be like, oh, Black Mirror's here, right? Like yeah. that becomes the thing, right? And I'm curious about, A, why that is, is generally so seductive. And I have a working theory, and I'm curious that I feel like, Again, if we had other voices at the table, 
right. we might not surface so much dystopia, right? Like I could be wrong, but I kind of feel like there, there are other stories to be told that are net positive to the extent that anything has to be positive. So I'm curious about the seduction of it, the allure, and then again, that aperture to get us a different option than dystopia. Dystopia doesn't feel real to many people. So it's like, it feels like a sp safe place to play in, you know, but only as sort of a creative, you know, sci fi artifact. Uh, so, so, you know, oh, yeah, you know, how bad could it get? I mean, we live in a w world that's for, for, thousands of years have been created by war and taxes so dystopia was was lived in our in our generations that went before us as normal you know uh, <laughs> there's one there's one story is i think it was in 472 ad um there was a number of catastrophic uh, global uh, volcanic explosions that literally put the world into darkness and there was pestilence and famine <laughs> and it's like People lived in that time, and it was bad, and a lot of people died. You know, the Black Plague, you know. It's like all of that, but these are all just like, you know, these are in the sands of time at this point in time, you know. And the world's getting better and more child mortality's down, all that good stuff, great, cool. Uh, and we're in this place, but, like, now we can play with that as an idea. But, I mean, I, I like to say we need to play with that kind of stuff with a very serious lens. It's like, yeah, pandemics. Ah, you know, I don't know. I watched a movie called Contagion. Ooh, you know, that, and it's like pandemics happen. Well, there's 7.5 yeah. million coronaviruses in nature, so they say. There's going to be another pandemic. There's been lots of pandemics, <laughs> you know. It's just about who, who, who it touches. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Who it touches? I mean, the Black Death basically. I think it killed off like two thirds of Europe, and um, and basically actually created a level of equality from the people that worked the land to the people that that, that owned the land that had to then give them ownership so that those people would continue to work. So it's a whole bunch of strange dynamics. But we like to play with this because we just feel comfortable watching a bad movie and and knowing that things aren't that bad for us. It's like Greek tragedies. It's a catharsis, right? Yeah. We feel better. <laughs> Absolutely. But Absolutely. I'm suggesting that we should live live in the darkness <laughs> and really understand things could be really bad and if we make bad decisions, right? And um, you know, we have to question who we are, how we're planning, what we're thinking. And um the reason we're seeing a shift of power to the east, you know, China, Indonesia, India and such like, is that um these these are cultures that think in hundreds of years or millennia. Yeah. And here we are in the West looking at the share results on a quarterly basis and thinking that everything's going to be fantastic and I can go and buy a new Tesla, right? It's like, yeah. Quarter by quarter is not the way to go. No way. I want to jump into the final two segments of the show because we, yeah. could, we could do a, a ton on this stuff and we barely scratched the surface of, yeah. of, of the book. But my off the dome, our questions are just rapid fire and... This one, I'm just giving like three choices, sure. right? Of which do you think is is most likely to happen? Sure. Right? So the first one is we colonize Mars versus defund the police. Which one's most likely to happen? <laughs> so Mars is a terrible place to live. That's not really going to actually happen. <laughs> but there, there, I mean, there, there, there is going to be um, some kind of science projects. The Artemis missions are going to be really important uh, with Mars. Defund the police? Oh, I did a big study for a client at the beginning of the pandemic around this. We've got um, the police globally, the police locally, um, the police in, the, in America, the police in Canada. We, we need to... Um, focus more on the betterment of society and how we can heal multi-generational multi trauma. And I'm okay with taking some money from the coffers that give it to police to try and castigate the people that are struggling in life. There you go. Okay. W what's most likely self-driving autonomous vehicles or no cars at all? Uh, self-driving autonomous vehicles. I mean, no cars. We, we, our cities are built for cars. We'd have to reimagine cities entirely. The way that society operates, we're kind of we're we're, we're going to be in there. We just did a big project on like flying cars and stuff like that. That's not going to be a thing, definitely. Um, not not for the general populace because you know uh, an eight lane highway um, can only be replaced by I think it's about fifteen hundred flying autonomous vehicles in the air at any one point in time, taking the same amount of people. So it's kind of ridiculous. We're going to have cars. 
they will be autonomous. Um, logistics is going to be fully autonomous before any kind of car that you and I would be using. Taxis will be fully autonomous. I'm bullish on this stuff. I think within 10 to 15 years, the world's going to look very different. And uh, yeah, it's an exciting place. Okay. And my final one, Yeah, which is most likely, AI ascension or women having full body autonomy? Fuck. I live in Canada, man. Like we're we're socialists. Let's be honest. Even even the conservatives are socialists. I'm from the UK. I'm basically a socialist. So um, full full body autonomy, like is is a de facto standard in my life in the places that I've always lived. Right. If you're talking down in the states, yeah, we're going backwards, man. You know, <laughs> uh, uh, eventually, all the old white guys are going to die and let women take over. And at that point in time, there's going to be no problems. Um, structurally and um, that we're fi- fi- finding today not yeah. to say you know you know more queer people in government when when's there going to be like a queer um a, a queer female president of the united states i you know what I, in the next 50 years sure why not yeah you know i i <laughs> i'm hopeful no. but I'll, I'll say this right it ain't it ain't all the the quote unquote old white guys, right? There's a lot of folks out there who look like me who are on some bullshit. Yeah. <laughs> so it, you know, Clarence Clarence but, Thomas is is darker than me, and he's horrible. It's <laughs> the the thing is, it's still mostly dudes. Yeah, <laughs> you know, and, dudes. and hey, you know, and I, you know, I, I sort of said a, a queer female president. I'm not saying that people of all sorts of denominations can't still have that really narrow focus on, (laughs) you know, an ego-based like drive for control. But I'm just saying that if we actually look at the people that have got deeper senses of compassion in society, they're generally not men. Yeah, let's, let's be honest. Let's tip know. the scales. I 100% agree with yeah. you. Yeah, and you know, <laughs> I, I think the empowerment of youth, the empowerment of diverse people from a, from an identity perspective, from a cultural perspective, you know, I love places. I moved to Canada because I, I really love uh, Canada and North America, the culture here. I really love the US. I really do. I spend a lot of time in California and New York City, in LA, San Francisco, um, Denver, Austin, you know, I, I'm into it. I'm into it, man. But like, let's underline ooh, those those cities. You know, we, it's we'll, getting it's getting hectic. I had a conversation with someone in Florida last last year, and they sat me down afterwards, and they just wanted to fight with me about the trucker protest and 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 the di- dictatorship of Justin Trudeau. And I'm like, what are you talking about, man? It's like yeah, Canada. Leave that alone. <laughs> Canada operates like 14 different countries and Trudeau's got a little role to play. There's another idiot that made bad decisions regarding that trucker protest. And by the way, all those people were basically, they became puppets of foreign state actors. Yep. This is why it all got shut down in a number of different ways and whatever. This is another conversation. For Absolutely. So. But, like, me- um, but like, this is it, right? It's, um, I, just, I just take to the stage, take to interviews like this. You know, this is what I'll leave you with. Futurism is activism. Yeah, we we gotta change. We gotta change because the world is completely unsustainable today. I I definitely underlined that point. I want to get to the drop real quick. Yeah, and the drop is just a, a recommendation or recommendations. Sure. Of of something that our our listeners should be aware of, and I'll go first really quickly. I'm rewatching for the millionth time, Mad Men. I'm on season. Yeah. Me too. Four. Me too. And I'm watching it, it through um, Freevee, which is a terribly named subset of Amazon Prime. Yeah. Um, but you can also watch it on AMC Plus, but I refuse sure. to pay money for AMC Plus. But I, I rewatch this show all the time. It's one of my top five favorite shows. Yeah. And despite the fact that people think the show is about marketing, the show is actually about psychiatry. Um, yeah, so sure. that's the that's what runs through the entire show not to give a spoiler but it is a it is show around psychiatry and counterculture yeah those are the those through the lens of advertising and i love right. mad men i love even the most unlikable characters give me a laugh i'm looking at you harry crane i hate you and um oh, and um on. that's that's my drop so yeah. you're up 
I'm up. I'm going to come up with it. You, yeah. You know, I'm, uh, so yeah, Mad Men. It's about multi generational trauma just played out across like everywhere. And I worked in advertising. It's shocking how much advertising ten years ago still felt like Madison Avenue, right? In many, 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 many different ways. Oh, I'm going to come up with a drop. So, so. I mean, do you want a film? A reference? It could be anything. It, it could okay. be a, you know, so, anything. So if the listeners want to focus on anything that's going to be the greatest dynamic that's going to play out in the next 200 years, look at water sovereignty, who owns it, who sells it, uh, where it is, how it's being used, um, its effect on the energy and food nexus. And uh, water is is interesting. If you if you watch The Quantum of Solace. Yes. Um, the, the, right? It's about, I think it's Mr. White and the organization Spectre buying up all the water across the world. Yeah. Yeah, that was a, that was not as well received as Casino Royale. But yeah. to me, it was a more interesting premise. Oh, yeah. For exactly what, why, what you mentioned. The darkness. I flew from Vegas to, uh, to Toronto last year in September. I flew over Nebraska. I looked down on the Platte River. Actually, I looked down on the Platte um, uh, riverbed. There was no water. Yeah. We're, we're living in a world um, that I don't think people realize is, 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 is desperate for more water and some sovereignty. Canada's got 21% of the world's fresh water. Um, I like to think that we're going to live in a world of water tankers over oil tankers. It's also going to be a very challenging place. And uh, yeah, just wait and see what's going to happen this summer in California. They have plenty of water this winter. Yeah. You wait to see what happens when those when those uh, when when that snow melts and when the wildfires go absolutely ballistic because those plants have had plenty of water to grow. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Um, this <laughs> not as fun as yours though, Phil. No, but Sorry. relevant, yeah, right? Sure. Um, this was awesome, um, Nicholas. I'm glad we got a chance to do this again. Yeah, the man. book is facing our futures. It's a it's a fantastic read. I, I highly recommend it. And next time you're in New York slash Brooklyn, man, we gotta we gotta get together and, and talk music. <laughs> At least once a year, I'm there. I was there in December. I, I went to see uh, LCD Sound System at Brooklyn still. Ah, awesome. Yeah. Awesome so, band. Yeah. All anyway. right, brother. Well, thank you so much for being on the deep dive with me. Yeah, cheers. You can listen to the deep dive via Apple Podcasts and our website, thedeepdivepod.com. Download, subscribe, listen, and share. If you like what you're hearing and enjoy what me and the team are putting together, then leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. You can follow me on Twitter via at FarFlungPhil. To all my listeners, wherever you are in the world, I thank you. See you on the other side.